Good afternoon and welcome to Talk of the Towns. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities to share what works to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns has aired on WERU Community Radio since 1993, dedicated to the proposition that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, and our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefits to our friends, our neighbors and colleagues. And of course, in this pandemic time, it is an interactive show. We don't, aren't taking calls from listeners. We hope to be able to do that um, in the new year as science tells us we can safely. I'm your host, Ron Beard, hoping you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. What with pandemics and politics, we humans think we live in tumultuous times, but not really. If we change our frame of reference to the geology of place and planet, molten lava, continents forming and breaking, glaciers, sea rising and falling, now that's tumult. I'm so happy to have some friends in, in, in this program with us. And we've got uh, Sarah Hall, who is a professor of geology at College of the Atlantic. Welcome to you, Sarah. Thanks, great to be here. Along with her is uh, Sarah Gibson, who is a 2020 graduate from College of Atlantic. Welcome to you, Sarah. Hi, Ron. Thank you so much. Along with them, uh, Joe Kelly is Emeritus Professor of Geology at the University of Maine. And Don Hudson um, is the Emeritus Director at Chewankee. Perhaps each of you could um, give us a thumbnail sketch of your own work, uh, starting with Sarah Hall. Um, you came to the College of Atlantic a few years ago. What brought you to COA and, and uh, um, what excites you about it now? Yeah, um, I, well, I came to College of the Atlantic in 2012, so it's been more than a few years it seems now, but um, I came to COA because I was really excited to um, be able to teach field-based classes to undergraduate students in this this beautiful natural laboratory and classroom that is the area of coastal Maine. Um, and COA really encourages field-based courses, experiential learning for undergrads. So it was um, easy for me to build the field right into all of my classes. And also COA is an opportunity to have a lot of creative freedom in my classes. So I teach a wide range of earth science classes um, about rocks and minerals, but also climate and weather and a, and a whole wide range of things in between. Right. And so, um, but I also understand that you, you get students to, um, sometimes you get them to sites away from the coast of Maine. You've got some research projects going on elsewhere in the world. Yeah. Uh, well, I've taken students on some field trips to other places. We went to um, South America, to Peru, where I did a bunch of my PhD research a few times. And um, more recently, we were out in California, where I um, spent some time during my doctoral studies. So I mostly take students in the field for um, to, to learn field methods. And a lot of my students do research projects that are sort of locally, um, in, in local areas around Maine. So they can access the field more regularly and not have to fly around the world to, to do their research. Joe Kelly, tell us a little bit about your own background and, and your career um, uh, with the University of Maine. Thank you, Ron. Um, I came here in 1982, quite a bit uh, longer um, uh, than Sarah, but uh, I was appointed as the state's marine geologist and I began studying the coast, which was relatively unstudied with my, uh, I had a colleague, Dan Belknap, who's also retired now. Um, about a third of my time was dedicated to 
development applications. People wanted to build a house here or there and get involved in the legal dimensions. But most of my time was mapping the sea bottom using cool geophysical imaging devices and I've done a lot of that and made maps. Um, basically studying the response of shorelines and their inhabitants to changing levels of the, of the ocean. And I've worked on that a, a great deal. Um, but I, I'm not really done. I, I joined the University of Maine formally, even though I was based there since 82 in 2000, and I've gone more international now, particularly in Ireland and England or Scotland. Uh, and now I've got a big NSF grant to work in Peru. Sadly, we uh, can't go there uh, last summer and I'm not buying tickets yet for this coming summer. So that's on hold. But I got another grant from the US Geological Survey to scan my slide collection of the Maine coast mm -hmm. and to put it on a searchable database at the Maine Geological Survey's website. We're about 6,700 slides into just coastal pictures and we're gonna go live with it. I think toward the end of this month, there'll be a press release of some sort. They'll be all accessible uh, and there will be comments, you know, why was that picture, when was that taken? And a lot of pictures, as you might suppose, are of the same place over a period of many years, watching how it is uh, how it has changed. Mm. So no oh, shortage, no shortage of projects, um, even in retirement. No, no. In fact, here I am today. But no, no. It's it's <laughs> retirement's good. You can be more selective, uh, a lot more selective. Well, Sarah Gibson, um, you're not retired. You're just starting out. Um, how did you come to College of Atlantic from from Scotland? Yeah, so I grew up in Scotland and then I came to College of the Atlantic in 2016 having graduated from United World College beforehand, which is an international high school. And I was really attracted to COA because of its field-based components for classes. I really wanted to study something within the world of Earth and environmental sciences, but I wasn't sure is that going to be more targeted towards marine biology or natural history or ecology, or I just, I knew I wanted to be learning outdoors um, and COA has that unique learning approach to its classes. Um, and so, yeah, I came to COA and I remember actually my very first term at COA, I took an intro to geology class taught by Sarah Hall, where I learned about the geology of Mount Desert Island. And that's my very first geology class I've ever taken. And just learning about how crucial that, that sort of perspective, that geological perspective is. And that really opened up my horizon to thinking about our landscapes and our our planet and, and thinking about the connections, the global connections that Maine shares with Scotland geologically um, and sort of even further beyond that. So um, my time at COA has been spent um, studying earth sciences, environmental sciences. Um, recently I've been working at the Landing Garden Preserve, which is a small preserve here on the island. Um, and yeah. Mm. So um, what was your, your, your senior project? What, what, what did you do as part of that? Is that related to our program today? You know, it's all ties around this. Um, and it actually comes back to a little bit of the story that maybe we can dive into later after we talk more about Don. But um, so for my senior project, which is a capstone project at COA that all students have to complete, um, I was interested in developing a geopark for coastal Maine. And I actually first heard about Geopark through Sarah Hall, who visited a Geopark um, years ago with her father in Scotland. And we started talking about, well, could a Geopark be possible for Maine? And in order to sort of answer that question, I had to learn more about what a Geopark is and how it functions. And so part of actually my entire final year at CUA was spent researching that. I got the opportunity to visit to a couple of Geoparks 
um, one in Iceland, a couple in Scotland, went to a conference, um, and I kind of brought back all the information and ideas to, to Maine. Um, and then the rest of my, my final year was spent around thinking and developing this geopark, and this is actually where we still are. Um, so yes, this is why we're here today as okay. well. Okay, great. Well, Don Hudson, um, tell us a little bit about um, what um, brought you to your work um, at Chewankee, and then I, I do want you to tell a little bit about the International Appalachian Trail, but um, tell us about your work with Chewankee as an educator. Uh, well, I, I worked at Chewankee uh, for 45 years and retired 10 years ago. Um, and when I started working there in 1966, it was only a summer operation. So I was a summer employee. And uh, by the time I uh, was in college, the first full-time director was hired. And uh, his name was Tim Ellis, and he began to expand programming. And so during my years in college, every summer I worked at Chewankee and new ideas were emerging for wilderness expeditions uh, here, there, and everywhere, um, most notably for me in the wilds of central Quebec. So I spent a lot of time during college leading canoe expeditions uh, in Cree Indian territory in central Quebec and clearly on a different landscape than I was used to in Maine. So I began to, particularly, I, I was drawn first to plants. And after working at Chewankee after college in helping to start some year-round programs, I decided to go back to school. I focused on botany. I did a, a master's thesis on Arctic alpine plants uh, on Katahdin. And then I went off and got a PhD in an entirely different uh, field of botany and ethnobotany. And by the time I was finishing up, a full-time position in natural history was opening up and I applied for it and got it. So mm. when you really look at it, apart from delivering newspapers and a few other things, the only place I've ever worked was at Chewankee. And so while I was there, the, the organization uh, developed into a year-round institution. Sarah and Sara would be interested to know that I developed a college semester program at Chewankee that the faculty of the College of the Atlantic approved for COA credit in 1984. And uh, we only ran that semester program for one year, so it didn't amount to too much. But um, that was the kind of thing we were exploring in those days. And I was focused on the natural history of the Maine coast, mostly looking at the living parts of the natural history of the Maine coast. But I couldn't get past looking at rocks. It was essential to understand geology to really put together the living story on the landscape. And so informally, I learned more and more about geology. And it wasn't until I retired and actually visited the first, uh, the first time I visited a geopark was in 2009, just before I retired. And it just, was so clear to me at that time that the geopark concept was such a great way to frame life on the planet and to mm -hmm. understand how all the pieces fit together, um, beginning in the basement, if you will, and sort of building the foundation upon which everything else um, plays out its life. So um, I think Sarah probably through her colleagues in the, in the geology community in Maine, 
found out about the International Appalachian Trail, knew that it was, um, uh, that the basic tenet for the International Appalachian Trail is geology and earth history and specifically the earth, the history of the earth in our part of the, on our part of the planet for the last 250 million years plus. And so uh, when Sara came up with the idea to study a geopark, Sarah um, recommended that she reach out to me and I've had a ball working with these guys. This team of four people that you uh, have with you today um, has been a great group to um, support Sara with her vision uh, and to move the idea forward. Great, great. And most people know about the uh, Appalachian Trail. Give us just a very brief description of the International Appalachian Trail and why there's this connection between, uh, for instance, Scotland and Maine. Right. Okay. Um, well, I'll, I'll do it uh, briefly. Um, <laughs> we proposed the idea a little more than 25 years ago uh, to connect Maine, New Brunswick, and uh, southern Quebec. Uh, the highest point in Quebec province is actually in the far north. Um, so we're connecting the highest points of southern Quebec, New Brunswick, and Maine. And it was really, it was really um, a rural economic development project. Um, we proposed this idea to better link the people of our three relatively poor, on the grand scale of things, rural um, provinces and state. And to link them with, because of a very similar geology and very similar plant and animal communities. And, uh, and it, the idea took off. Um, however, these mountains that extend past Katahdin well into the, into the Gas Bay also are part of the Newfoundland, Newfoundland uh, terrain. And um, if you look closely at the rocks, they, rim, they ring the entire North Atlantic Ocean Basin all the way to Morocco. And so you scratch your head and say, well, how could that be? And that's really when you have to get the earth historians such as Sarah and Joe to help you understand that at one point in, in our past, uh, this was all part of one very large mountain range that ran right down through the relative center of a single continent called Pangaea, which is just comes from Greek and Latin roots, which mean um, one earth or, or one land, um, all land, Pangaea. And um, so the earth is not a quiet place, as you know, <laughs> no, Ron, it's not a quiet place. And when the te tectonic forces began to move to break apart this single continent, uh, that process, uh, was sort of a, I like to think of it as a, as a two-step process, sort of a partial opening and then a closing and then a full opening again. And that two-step process that geologists refer to as the Akkadian and Taconic orogenies um, separated this mountain chain essentially by the creation of what we call the Atlantic Ocean. Mm. And so now those pieces of ancient, ancient mountains are, are uh, on both sides of Great. what we call the North Atlantic Ocean Basin. And the IAT 
wasn't designed to run through all of them initially, but it was geologists in Scotland who called us up and said, can we participate? Can we, can we extend your trail to our terrain? And we said, sure. And, and, uh, <laughs> The it's rest all. is history, <laughs> or at least beginning to be history. Yeah. Um, you're tuned to WERU's Talk of the Town. We're talking about creating a geopark for Maine. You just heard from Don Hudson, who is Emeritus Director at Chewankee and an active participant in creation of the International Appalachian Trail. Also with us, we have uh, Sarah Hall, a professor of geology at College of the Atlantic, Sarah Gibson, a 2020 graduate of College of Atlantic, and Joe Kelly, Emeritus Professor of Geology at the University of Maine. So, um, Sarah, back to you now. You, you had this idea of a, a geopark. Um, did that come from your interest in Scotland's geology? How did, how did you kind of come up with this idea as a, as a, a place of study? Well, yeah. Um, well, let me get my thoughts together here. Um, the idea actually originated, as I mentioned before, from Sarah, and because I had never heard of a geopark before until I was at COA. Um, and the more I started learning about it, the more I just wanted to understand how it could potentially work for coastal Maine. Um, but it definitely was a sense of fascination about how this model works and how it integrates so many components. It's, it starts from a geological perspective, and that is something that's so unique about a geoparks model. There's very little other forms of education or conservation models that start from the geology. Um, and so geoparks encompass education, but also work so much with local community members, and they really work from a sort of bottom grass up perspective. Um, and working with these local communities to help promote sustainable development. And that combination of both working with local communities, thinking about landscapes and how important landscapes are for them, but then also combining that with promoting education about how the geology has influenced so many other components of that region's natural and cultural heritage, it paints a really holistic picture of that landscape. And that's something that I was really drawn towards. Um, so at COA, we study one major in human ecology and students get a chance to explore that major and through their own lenses. And I was really interested in looking at this, yeah, what are all the different interactions between humans and the environment and how geology can shape your understanding of environment so much. Um, so geoparks, their concept had integrated so much in my understanding of human ecology as well. And so that's just something my eyes just felt compelled to want to learn more about them. Um, and, and then, yeah, having the opportunity to travel to geoparks across Scotland back home and, and learning about the geology there. I, growing up, I never actually studied geology. I, I never knew about really the rocks that were underneath the, the sort of landscape that I grew up in. And so it was a really unique opportunity for me to go back home and reconnect with my sense of place there um, and expand and broaden my perspective of what that landscape entails. And there was moments when I was learning about different geological processes that happened in Scotland and realizing that timeline connects with some features I'd learned about in Maine and really they were part of the same process mm. um, and it was still cool to be able to to both Maine and Scotland on that same timeline um, yeah great Sarah Hall what would you add to a definition of of a geopark and how did you first learn about the geopark concept um, well 
I'm not sure if it's the, the definition that I'm speaking to necessarily, but I, um, I took a trip with a friend to Iceland. It was actually a couple of different friends and some were geologists and some were not. And then I followed that up with a trip to Scotland with my dad, um, who's not a geologist. He's just listening to me talk about rocks a lot, but he likes human history a lot. And, and I found that the geoparks, both in Iceland and in Scotland, were really great ways to, to do like a self-guided vacation, but also like kind of, you know, you could learn about things that you were interested in and you could choose what you wanted to to learn about. And so there was something there for my dad who was really interested in the human history. And and then there was something there for me who was really interested in the rock. And then we could teach each other and tell each other about the things we like. So I think uh, I w it was an appealing way to travel through a, a, a country where you got to learn about the culture, modern people, and also deep time processes. And I thought it would be great for coastal Maine. Um, and I every now and then would drop that little bit of information on some students and Sarah was interested in, and she followed up on it. So um, yes, yeah, so I guess I have a, a vacation to thank for learning about geoparks. Well, it's, it suggests that the geopark concept is, a, is another way um, to develop uh, a kind of tourism, which is not, um, um, well, it, it's, it's based on, on learning. Um, and that, that seemed to be the thing that tied you and, and your colleagues together, is that it's a learning vacation. It's something that, that is not entertainment so much as, as study. That's right. And, you know, it was also not just in hotspots. Like Acadia National Park is amazing and it's wonderful, but, you know, a lot of people are focused in that area. And there's a lot of other opportunity to, to learn about um, people in place along the main coast to sort of spread that out a little bit. And I, I enjoyed that about those geoparks and other places as well. We weren't just in a, one place where all the crowds were, we could actually spread out. So I think, yeah, that's another appealing part of it. Joe, this wasn't a question that I, I put to you ahead of time, but I remember one of your colleagues, um, Harold Bournes, um, kind of introducing the idea of an ice age trail in this, in this area. And, and that seems to connect. Is, is that still connected in your mind as well? Oh, absolutely. Uh, the Ice Age Trail uh, is out there. It's, it's done. You can buy maps. Um, but it is focused singularly on the Ice Age and the events immediately following the Ice Age, whereas the Geopark is much older. We go farther back in time to the rocks, and we can even come up to modern processes. So it, it fits perfectly right within the whole scope of things we're, we're talking about. Uh, so where do things stand now? Um, Sarah, you've graduated, so um, this work is, is beyond your kind of commitment to the to College of the Atlantic, but where, where, how, how far have you come? Where do things stand now? I'll start with you and I'll get comments from others. Yeah, I mean, one thing to realize is that southern geoparks existing across the world, many of them have taken several years to, to get to a point where they're able to be fully running and have operational management. We've only been working for one year, and really that year just seems slowly crystallizing and forming um, new ideas and possibilities. So we're still very early in, in the stage of sort of planning, but still have been able to accomplish a lot within this past year. Um, starting off with, I, I, I took a couple of months to travel and learn about geoparks and then brought that information back. Um, and then ran the idea of the geoparks through a business incubator at College of the Atlantic, or a business incubator called a hatchery. Um, and they learned valuable skills. And, and through that time also, we've been able to build a lot of relationships with local people. Um, so just reach out to local community members and hear what their thoughts and ideas are about this geopark. Is this something that they'd be supportive of or are they concerned about this? 
Um, so slowly just building these relationships between uh, land trust, between local community members, and um, just so many other folks. Um, and this is what we're continuing to work on. This will be a perpetual work that we always want to do is build these relationships. Um, during this summer, we actually held a sort of a strategic planning workshop where we invited many of these community members that we'd already sort of um, made some relationship with to just ranging from educators um, to local stakeholders um, to hear what their thoughts and perspectives are and how we could build a sort of a year to year vision of the geopark together. Um, oh, and before that, sorry, um, during the spring of 2020 at College Atlantic, we started working with two other classes. One class was a, an advanced geoheritage tutorial class, and another class was a design class. And the geoheritage class, they were students who were researching and learning about the geoheritage of coastal Maine um, and in specific areas that their proposed geopark is. Um, and then they were taking that information and communicating it to the other students in the design class to then take that information and prototype various interpretation panels. Um, and it was a really great collaboration where we could start thinking about this huge question of what are the stories we tell? How do we tell those stories? How do we present them? Um, and this was, it was very much an exercise as well for the students, but it's definitely got us thinking that we need to be telling these stories from the local people. And this is what we'll be moving forward to be doing um, within the next six months is, first of all, making more connections with local people, working with Native Americans, um, working with other people to really think about what the stories are we're telling um, through the geopark mm. and slowly crafting them into different forms of interpretation. Um, so that's some of the work we'll be working on going into the future. Mm. Don Hudson, you mentioned earlier that um, some of your earlier work was with um, uh, taking canoe trips into Cree Indian territory, native native territory. What was the relationship? Um, can you relate that to what we're talking about now in terms of how we, we might think about um, connecting with Wabanaki people um, in the creation of a, a geopark? I think you're muted, Don. Thanks. Uh, uh, my rooster was crowing in the background. So I <laughs> It was, it, was, uh, it was probably, in hindsight, it's more clear to me than it was when I was 21 and 22 and 23. But as I look back on it now, knowing what I know about the way that uh, Wabnaki people see themselves with the land, as part of the land, as one of the living beings that, is, that make up land. Um, and I look back on the Cree guides with whom we traveled, it was clear that they uh, moved in the land differently than we tend to move on the land. They thought about things uh, differently. They acted differently. Um, and, and that would be a matter of a whole other show. Sure, sure. Things we learned. But I see now that particularly because geoparks, the, the, the reason that there's this relationship between the IAT and geoparks is, is really that the IAT travels through something now, I think the number is 18 different geoparks around the North Atlantic. It's a large number and it's an obvious connection to make. And especially since the story of the IAT is one of, of earth history. 
So I think there's an opening with a geopark, which is founded in earth history. There's a real opening to help people understand how indigenous people uh, see the land and, and really see it as, as not separate from them or something that they possess, but as something they are part of. And that's a very different perspective than our Western perspective. Land is something that we purchase. It is something we build on um, and, and we come at it differently. And I think this a geopark offers a wonderful opportunity across a fairly broad landscape um, to um, introduce those who grew up with a sort of European Western perspective to see how the indigenous people um, on this continent uh, looked at the same land. Mm. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a, I, I think it, it, it won't be an absolutely easy uh, knock it out of the park uh, kind of thing to do. Um, it'll take some hard work and some, and some real meaningful collaboration, um, probably with the assistance of the Abbey Museum, I, I should imagine, um, given that the Abbey Museum is right in the middle of what is being proposed as the Coastal Maine Geopark. Um, I think a lot of good work uh, can be done. Great. Well, you're tuned to Talk of the Towns, and when we come back after I just do this quick announcement, we'll look at some um, places that you've thought about, um, three places in Maine, um, that might make uh, a focus for um, some of the geopark activities. But you're, as you said, uh, I said, we're tuned to Talk of the Towns. Um, in the, in the uh, program, we have uh, Don Hudson, Emeritus Director of Chiwanki, Joe Kelly, Emeritus Professor of Geology at the University of Maine, Sarah Gibson, a 2020 graduate of College of Atlantic, and Sarah Hall, professor of geology at College of Atlantic. Um, so, um, Sarah Gibson, uh, tell us a little bit about, um, you know, the stories that we might tell, and I think you've identified three communities that you might do that, and you can get your colleagues to help tell that story, but if you could kind of introduce it, that would be great. Yeah, so, first of all, the area that we're proposing for Geo Park is ranging sort of from mid-coast Maine, all the way up to the very tip of the coastal area up in Quebec, um, and then following the Route 1 corridor and the coastline. So that's sort of our general area with the Geo Park. And I just want to make clear that a Geo Park doesn't own any land or buy any land. It's sort of a living landscape. And so this is the area in which we're focusing on, in part because it is an area that focuses closely on a volcanic belt. So the main volcanic belt stretches this area and it provides a really unique geology setting for this landscape. So that was one of the reasons we really want to focus on this area along with the fact that the coastline is a dynamic place. Its story is ever unfolding, its geology is ever unfolding. Um, and so within this reaching of the geopark, there's a couple of areas that we're, we're sort of like, not, yeah, we're sort of breaking it down in some way just to help people navigate through that landscape. Um, and we've selected a th three areas today to talk about and share with the audience um, about some of those stories. So the first one we selected is down at Damascotta. Um, the second is Fort Knox and the third is Lubeck. And we could start with maybe Damascotta and talk a little bit about the geology behind that area. Um, and I'd love to invite Joe, Sarah, Don to sort of talk a little bit about this. Maybe we could start with Joe and his focus on um, the kind of the marine geology. What about Dan Riscotta, um, st strikes you as of, of particular interest, Joe? 
Well, the Damariscotta area, um, of course, includes Pemaquid Point, which is uh, you know a major visitor center. And those rocks are very, uh, uh, very appealing to people. They're nice. You can see them. They were layers that were horizontal. Now they're vertical. They were sand and mud. Now they're altered into a, what we call metamorphic rock. Um, and it, the way bedrock geologists, and I'm not a bedrock geologist, but have mapped it, is it's, it's the same rocks you'd see are very similar to the ones at uh, uh, Two Lights in Cape Elizabeth, but they're really different looking because they've been heated and, and squeezed to a much greater degree. Um, so phenomenal place. These were underwater landslide deposits. Now they're these spectacular rocks that are upended and there's a beautiful lighthouse on top. Um, so there's a lot we could talk about there. I mean, you can go through the geological history and I could see us having a a sign that explains it and relates it to some other areas that would look quite different. There's the historical dimension of the lighthouse and how popular that has been. Um, yeah, quite a number of features in that area. Then we come to, um, we're coming uh, down the coast to Fort Knox. Um, why is that of significance? Um, who can kind of pick up the story? Sarah Hall, can you tell us a little bit about um, the, the geology that then leads to um, some more historical, colonial historical reference? Uh, well, that, that region around Fort Knox, so certainly uh, not just the fort, but that, that general area uh, has a, a lot of great field trip stops that I often take my students actually from really some old bedrock and 500 to 600 million year old meta sedimentary rock that's so nicely um, available to view in the road cut just near the, the Penobscot Narrows Bridge. Um, it's, a, it's also that rock is intruded by granite like all along the coast there's there's uh, meta sedimentary rocks that formed in ancient ocean basins but that then were intruded by igneous rocks when volcanoes were active um, along the coastal region. And the, the magma that was um, forming those, in the, the associated with those volcanoes is, is what people in Maine have mined in many different granite quarries all along the coast. And um, in that particular area, the Mount Waldo granite um, was even used for um, the, the Fort Knox site. Um, also, it's a great place to see the Penobscot River. I mean, the river alone has so many stories and connections to modern people who, who use the river and ancient people who've used the river all through time and um, settlements along the river. And there's also a nice glacial history um, preserved in, in the landscape in that area as well. So, um, there, and I didn't even get to all of the ideas, but those are, those are some of the things I point out to my students when, when we drive through that area. And how about um, uh, Lubeck, um, who can pick up the story and talk about that um, place, Joe Kelly? Yeah, I, that was the first place I really worked in Maine. I really studied as a geologist. I was hired to understand earthquakes, which is odd because that's not really what I do, but they wanted to find, we get a lot of earthquakes. We wanted to see if there were ruptures in the seafloor and Lubeck was ground zero. There were a lot of earthquakes in that area. And I, very first time I went there, there was a, there was a van out on the tidal flats, big tidal range. And I walked out to it and there were a bunch of people dancing to disco music. I thought they were ancient. They were probably in their 60s, uh, younger than me today, but uh, they were drinking and dancing. And I asked them if they knew about, about earthquakes. And oh boy, they all started talking about no women inherited as grandmother's China because everything fell off the shelf at some point or other. So Lubeck's got a lot going. The beach there is the most dynamic beach probably in New England. Nah, maybe Cape Cod could rival it, but it's moved almost a half a mile landward uh, in the historic period. We have good maps because it is on the border with Canada. So 
you know, it's been looked at by mappers uh, for quite some time. Uh, it's just a really fascinating beach for that reason. Uh, right next to it is, uh, is a heath. You know, it's a, it's a peat bog, which up until a couple of years ago was completely exposed. You could look at the last 13,000 years of the history of that area, right in the layers of, uh, of the peat. But because it's eroding so quickly, the army came in a couple of years ago and have, have put rocks over it. So you can't, uh, they'll come up, they'll fall down, don't worry. But, uh, th but they're there now and you can't see the heat like you used to. But I've led field trips there for people from literally all over the world, China, Russia, all of Europe. And they just come away stunned. It is such an incredible area to see geologically, not even to mention Westquati Head is there. <coughs> Oddly named, it's the most eastern point in the United States, but it's Westquati Head State Park. And that's an, in, an inevitable uh, lunch stop. So you get to sit there and look out at the ocean. Beautiful area. Mm. And so, um, Sarah Gibson, how would all this come together? What, what, um, I understand that... Um, the United Nations, UNESCO, has a designation for um, uh, geoparks. How would it come about? You said there's, a, there's another probably two or three years of kind of getting ready, but what would it look like um, later on? Um, if, you, if you think about the uh, geoparks you visited, um, what would you then want to see here in, in Maine? Yeah, so just to clarify first, so UNESCO does have a global geopark status, similarly to the World Heritage Status or the Biosphere Reserve, but they don't own the term geopark. And so we are inspired by the UNESCO geopark model. Um, currently right now, we can't actually apply for a global geopark status, even if we wanted to, because the US is no longer a member state of UNESCO. However, we're still being inspired by that model. And what that would look like, say, several years down the line would be that our, first of all, management structure would be formalized and more so than us four volunteers. Uh, we're, we're looking towards becoming a nonprofit later on down the line. Um, and, but this management structure is working a lot with local community members, um, really starting from that grassroots movement. In terms of the geopark, the sort of vision would be to have various forms of education tailored towards different types of audience members. So really working towards local community members um, we're also working towards tourists coming to this region and also working with educators and, and students and schools. And so thinking about for local community members, well, that would mean uh, maybe there's local talks held at libraries and schools. Um, there's events happening throughout the year, I don't know, Geo Week, where local people will host workshops, um, but also ways for local people to be employed. Um, thinking about supporting small businesses as well through sustainable development. And that in large part comes also through tourism. And we know that tourism is both an asset, but also can be harmful if it's not thought about carefully. And so that's one thing we are trying to consider. Um, as we know, so Mont Desert Island is a hot spot during the summer. And the vision for a geopark is to try and promote other areas within down East Maine to support that form of tourism, to support people to travel down the East and to learn about the incredible landscape that is along that coastline. Um, and tourism would help support smaller businesses. Um, the geopark would help promote, especially local businesses, thinking about um, all just all the local products, thinking about blueberries or um, local beers, that all connect in some way to, to the geology. Um, and then along the geopark, at each site, there would sort of be called geosites. There may be some form of education, a form of interpretation panel, or people would pick up a little guidebook or 
maybe an app one day if also signal works in some areas in the main coast, which we know doesn't work right now. Um, but yeah, these forms of education are also tailored towards people of different levels of interest. So both advanced geologists can come to this region and learn more, but also the person who has absolutely no idea about how rocks are even formed can also learn something as well. So there's sort of a variety of information and education. Um, but yeah, and we also would love to, the vision is to work specifically with teachers and schools and can really see this as an opportunity for, to host sites, as uh, field sites for, for local teachers, uh, but also potentially for students to have internships through the geopark um, or to learn how to practice giving field guides. Um, so it's like a whole variety of, of what we'd love to achieve through the geopark, but also support the community on all these different levels. Um, and then there's sort of a bigger vision as well is to, to connect this region internationally. And because as we we're talking about before, the geology of this region connects beyond beyond Maine. And so connecting with the other geoparks in Canada, Nova Scotia, um, New, um, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, Newfoundland, um, and sort of building that international relationship as well. Mm. Uh, Sarah Hall, you can imagine, um, you know, your your experience in Scotland with you and your dad looking at different aspects of of the the landscape that you were encountering, both the human side as well as the the geological side. Um, what, what's what are your thoughts about how a geopark would would work in in Maine? Um, well, I, I think there's an opportunity to see the shared history. At, um, throughout Maine, like the deep time history, there were ancient ocean basins, there were all ancient volcanoes, there was an ancient landmass, Pangea, all that, the glaciation. And then there's also an opportunity to look at sort of specific places through time. You know, like look at the many different people, learn about many different people who've lived in a, in a place through time. So I, I think I like the way that the geopark in, will allow us to think about shared histories and also some histories that are really place-based and, um, and invite people into look at the landscape and um, I guess not really try to tell stories to people but give them the opportunity give people the opportunity to sort of like an entryway like invite people to open the front cover of a book and learn more about who maybe has lived there and let those people tell their story somehow through you know other other resources that maybe can be connected to the geopark so um, yeah I guess those, those are some of the ways I hope the geopark can be access in Maine. And, and the, the, the notion that um, the, uh, the geopark is, a, is a, an entry um, to what else is happening um, on the landscape. Um, both uh, Joe and, and others have said, um, you've indicated that the geology is so visible along the coast of Maine. Um, that it's not hidden, <laughs> you can see it. And, and that seems to be one of the, the features of a geopark is that it reveals to people um, what both the deep history um, that Sarah Hall has just mentioned, but also it gives a, a window on the human history. Don, did you wanna add something there? Yeah, I was, I was just gonna add that um, what intrigued me about the geopark concept when I first uh, was introduced to it in Scotland was the fact that um, uh, first and foremost, it's, it's, uh, it's not a traditional park. There isn't a boundary. Uh, there isn't a fence line. Um, there isn't a discrete piece of land that is managed by an entity, as we think of a park service or whatever. Um, it's an idea more than anything else. The idea came out of the European Union 
um, as they saw the rural parts of many countries in Europe becoming depopulated. The, uh, Northwest Scotland has the lowest uh, density of population in all of Europe, fewer than 2,000 people um, uh, per, I don't know how many hectares, but they're the least densely populated place in Europe. And they were really looking at, at uh, the geopark as a way to add, essentially add value to travelers who want to learn when they're traveling, mm. who don't just want to go to a resort and play golf, but who want to use their vacation time to expand their understanding of the world. Mm. And so they married those two concepts together. And the cool thing about a geopark is that it doesn't displace anybody. The, the rural um, economy remains the rural economy. The fishermen are still there. The lumbermen are still there. Uh, everybody is still doing their thing on the land. Um, now there's this um, overlay called a geopark, which really assists the people who live there to better understand the history of home, but also for the traveler to better understand where they are during their travelers. And it just seemed like a really cool idea to me and something easily accomplished. If you set aside the global political issues, you know, it's relatively easy to do this. Mm. It's, not, it's not rocket surgery. <laughs> what, what's been the reaction so far? I mean, you've, you've formed kind of a, a steering committee for this, but you've begun to have conversations out um, um, on the landscape. Um, what have been some of the reactions um, and, and uh, what are you finding? Uh, Sarah Gibson, I want to start with you and then we'll see if other people have got some, some things to add to that. No, I think overall, we've had a lot of support and it's been really encouraging. People are just really inspired to learn more about the geology and realizing that, yeah, actually, that's kind of a huge piece of a story that they're missing. Um, and so really excited about this idea of promoting education about the geology, but crucially connecting it with cultural heritage and natural heritage. Um, and that interface, it seems to be really captivating for people. Um, so in general, people will be very supportive. I think people are also concerned about just how will this project be sustained? into the future and where is funding coming from, who's going to be involved with it, um, how are you reaching out to people. So there's some big questions that we don't have the answers completely yet, um, but working towards answering and, and just slowly gaining ground. Mm. Um, it's, it strikes me as though um, people can make of it what they will. <laughs> Um, in other words, if there's no um, template that says this is what you you should do in a, a particular area. So if someone wanted to pick up um, a, a particular piece of the concept, um, I can imagine um, there are, are, are guides who take people out on puffin cruises. I can imagine that there might be uh, local guides um, that take people on kind of geological tours of, of an area to kind of help reveal um, what's already there. What are some of the other reactions that you've picked up? Um, uh, uh, Joe Kelly, um, how have people responded to this idea? Um, have, you, have you talked with a wider circle of people? Um, well, my circle is rather narrow, it's geologists. <laughs> but they've uh, liked the idea um, because we do field trips and the thought is there are plenty of places. I do my field trip here every year and I never go over there. Well, gee, now I know something about over there. Maybe I'll, I'll branch out a bit. And 
think a lot of interest in along those lines in uh, expanding what we know, expanding our range of sites that we visit and talk to our classes about. Sarah Hall, um, you've um, had a whole range of students come to your classes. Um, how could you imagine COA, for instance, College of Atlantic, using a geopark um, in a broader, broader sense? How would you send people out um, into these, this region of Maine? Well, I think, uh, I think COA students and, and just college students in general, or even high school students maybe, who want to go out for a hike or something and are interested in a new place could certainly use the geopark as a, as a launching um, point. We have an outing club. So even if students aren't technically taking a geoscience class, they, you know, can learn about the place. And I think that, you know, obviously also an opportunity for just public education. Um, there's, earth science isn't required um, in the same way as like biology um, at, at the high school level. And so because of that, I, every time I ask students when they enter my earth science classes, uh, how many of you have had earth science before? for a year, like a class of earth science that most of them haven't. Uh, most have had six weeks in middle school and they learned about MICA. That's all they remember. And I, I, I think this is an opportunity beyond college students. I also think though that, um, that this seems like a great opportunity for more citizen science opportunities. There, there are a number of citizen science initiatives already all along the coast of Maine, hosted by a number of institutions in, around M, on MDI, like the MDI Biolab and the National Park um, that I think can be plugged into these different sites and sort of let people um, collect information and then can kind of like participate as, as a scientist in a way, maybe like Joe's uh, slide collection that he's gonna be cataloging, like have people take pictures of the same place at different times, you know, from their different perspectives and, um, and see change, uh, especially in places where we think about coastal erosion or um, impacts of sea level rise along the coast and really help people connect uh, deep time processes to modern, and future, near future um, issues that we're gonna have to deal with. Joe Kelly, you've had a, a good deal of experience of, of involving citizens in monitoring um, what's happening on the coast of Maine. Tell us a little bit more about um, how that might fit into a, a geopark. Well, I think a lot of local people um, are itching to tell their story. They, they, do, they know some, maybe some tidbit of, of, of information, but now they'll see it fits into a larger story. Um, it might be local teachers bringing their classes out. And again, I focus much on education, um, but it could go commercial. There could be people wanting to take uh, tourists and to visit some of these. They'll be, you know, they'll be there. There'll be places you can go and there'll be information available. I'd like to see that happen. So I'd like to see a geopark become incorporated into the lives and the economies of the, the general down east coastal region. And I, I think there's a good opportunity for that to happen. What are the, the kinds of things that, as you say, the, the, uh, the geology is still changing, the, the coast is still changing. What are some of the things that, uh, Joe, uh, you'd like to see continuing to be monitored um, by citizen scientists? Okay, well, the rocks aren't really changing much. They, they right. are barely eroding. I mean, I've got pictures of uh, two, you know, various places that tourists have gone for 100, 150 years and taken pictures. Well, I've gone back and taken pictures go to two lights uh, or a Portland headlight in, in Cape Elizabeth and the only change you'll see, none of the rocks, the cracks are there, everything's in the same place for a hundred years, but the barnacles have moved up almost a foot and you can see it because you can see the cracks and, and I like to go to historic places. Uh, Acadia National Park has quite a number of them. Otter Cliffs is, is a favorite. 
So I would like to see people continuing that and expanding that uh, network of observational sites that are informal, but I could see a website coming out of that where we, you know, we can just show that you know, there are some things changing. Uh, the beaches are changing. If you see an eroding glacial deposit, I assure you it's going to change. Don't buy your house and put it on top, but uh, move back a bit. But it's, it's going to erode. And, uh, but the rocks won't erode. But again, there's the barnacles and they're moving up. Uh, so that's telling us a lot. And, and so that's, that's a story about sea level rise. Absolutely. Um, and, and the coast of Maine is not uniform in how that happens. Is that right? Well, the coast of Maine is experiencing the same general level of sea level rise along its length. There was a time when it was thought, that was when I was hired, that down east was sinking a great deal. Uh, that has not been borne by observations now over the years. We've really, two, I had two PhD students do their theses partly on it. And no, it's, it's the same in Kittery as it is in, in Calais. Um, but the, the response of the coastline is different because the geology is quite different from one place to the other. And so you could be forgiven for thinking that different things were happening when the same background process, the ocean levels rising, we're just seeing different responses from different kinds of coastlines. Don Hudson, how, how, how would you see this kind of playing out? Are some other aspects that you've thought about uh, based on your visits to other um, parts of the world and, and the concept of geoparks? Yeah, the, it's clear that the most successful geoparks are the ones that have the greatest community buy-in uh, and have sort of cracked that nut of how to have um, uh, really have the local local people um, participating um, at the table with the scientists thinking about the big picture and how to how to tell stories to the to the visiting public and also to uh, people in their own towns. But uh, that, I learned that, um, especially in Spain, um, the, the geopark we visited, uh, we visited a geopark to make a presentation about the International Appalachian Trail because the, the first section of trail in Spain um, was going to be part of this geopark. And there the, the trail um, was laid out on an old uh, 2000 year old Roman road that went up the side of a mountain. It was really kind of cool to be walking on that road. Um, and we had, oh, I think there were 150 people who came out to the Saturday morning walk that we held the uh, morning after we made our evening presentation about the, the trail. And, um, and then coming back to, to Scotland, of the two geoparks that I visited in Scotland, one has um, had a better buy-in by their community than the other, and they're the healthier enterprise. They're both wonderful geoparks, but one has better buy-in by the communities than the other, and so there's a lot to learn there. And I think for us, it means um, really engaging um, local leaders, thought leaders, and, and elected leaders um, sooner than later, and explaining the, the project and, and uh, sort of winning their confidence. Um, I think if we can do that, we'll be successful. In Newfoundland, uh, they went to each of the town councils and said, would you give us, your, your town is entirely within our geopark, would you give us a dollar per resident 
you know, one of the towns had 117 people, another town had 330 people. And so these towns wrote a check for $117 and a check for $330. And it was a symbolic contribution that said, we're in, mm. we want our town to be part of this project. And, uh, and, and the, the planners of the geopark were smart enough not to ask for $10,000, $117 would be fine. Right, right. And, and, um, and to really uh, symbolically engage those town folks. And lo and behold, um, they got really creative. Somebody, uh, somebody's restaurant was adjacent to another building and they opened up the office of the geopark in the, in the empty space next to the restaurant. And the restaurant was a meeting place. And, you know, you, you can tell those kinds of stories over and over again about how a community can get creative um, embracing a new idea. Sarah uh, Gibson, how would listeners learn more about um, your efforts and how might they get involved if they choose to? We have a website, um, www.coastalbanesgeopark.com, and we are always looking for people's feedback, interest, ideas. We really want to hear as many perspectives as possible. And there is a survey on that website, so you're welcome to take that. But you're also more than welcome to email any of us. Um, my email address is sgibson17 at coa.edu. You'll find all of our email addresses on the, on the website. Um, but we really greatly encourage, if you've been listening to the show today, if you've had any thoughts and ideas, to get, to get in touch. Great. Well, we've come to the end of an hour. Be sure and join us from four to five on the second Wednesday afternoon of each month for Talk of the Towns. Podcasts of our programs can be found in the archive section of the WERU website. If you've got comments or suggestions for topics, please email us at news at weru.org. Our theme music is a medley from Coronac on a Balnain House Highland music recording. Thanks again so much to our uh, guests here um, this afternoon, Sarah Hall, of Professor of Geology at College Atlantic, Sarah Gibson, a 2020 graduate of COA, Joe Kelly is Emeritus Professor of Geology at the University of Maine, and Don Hudson is Emeritus Director of Chewankee. Uh, thanks to those of you who've listened, and thanks to our underwriters here at WERU. Thanks to Amy Brown for helping engineer our program, and stay tuned for Ralph Nader Radio from 5 to 6, and Jazz Straight Ahead with Larry Stahlberg from 6 to 8. This is Ron Beard, producer and host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good afternoon.